This Cosmos Live series, How to Prepare for Profound Change, is made possible by Immediacy, leading creators of educational media for learners of all ages everywhere, and by Cosmos Community, dedicated supporters of the Cosmos mission, transformation in harmony with all life. Visit cosmosjournal.org to learn more. One of the things I was wondering uh, is if you'd be open to dropping into a little bit of a meditation with me. That sounds great. Thank you for for the invitation, and I, I'll very open uh, will welcome it with my heart. Great. So let's just drop into a heart connection yeah. here. Mm-hmm. That is Whole Systems designer and energetic architect Nicholas Joyce. He's speaking with Jeremy Lent. Jeremy is author of The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, which investigates how different cultures have made sense of the universe and how their underlying values have changed the course of history. His newest book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, was published in the spring of 2021. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to connect with you. I feel just such a strong resonance with the work that you've done and also such a deep reverence for the discipline and the dedication to open a book of what, over 500, 550 pages or so (laughs) that has such deep inquiry into, into meaning, into life, into all of these traditions and such, um, such a deeply spiritual orientation to it in my experience, but also such um, academic and contextual and structured orientation to really break down some of these big concepts and ideas uh, and make them available uh, for, I'd say different layers of the conversation that different people are ready to have. Well, thank you, Nick. Wonderful to to hear that from you, because what you just described is a lot of what my intentions are um, to sort of break some of those barriers. You know, um, one of the ways in which our modern world works is we split everything into compartments. You know, there's science over here, spirituality over there. There's like academic over here, like easy reading over there. Um, and all these things are meant to be separate and in categories. And like a lot of what I, my own way of making sense of the world and what I'm trying to communicate is that it's possible to actually do things in a more integrative way. And the book itself tries to be that. So it is very, I mean, it tends to, tries to be very rigorously scientific, but also looks at how there is no barrier actually between what is scientific and what's spiritual. That's just one of our constructions in our dominant culture. I was curious to ask, you know, what what is it in you that's really called you to put forth this kind of work in the world? Yeah, thanks for that question. Actually, uh, so much of this work that I'm putting out there, both The Web of Meaning and my earlier book, The Patterning Instinct, is really the result, the kind of expression, if you will, of my own deep uh, internal search for meaning. And... The way that 
occurred in my own life is I went through a pretty major existential crisis, I guess you could describe it, um, kind of midway through my adult life. Um, I'd actually, in the first part of my life, uh, I'd actually um, st- was an entrepreneur. Um, I built uh, an internet company during that first internet boom in 1996 mm. to nine or whatever. Um, actually uh, founded the company, uh, got investment, took it public, um, and was part of that sort of big uh, first wave. And then not long after that, um, my first wife, who passed away some years back, um, became quite seriously ill. And I left the company to look after her. Mm-hmm. And then the company collapsed. I left it too early. And then um, as I was looking after um, my first wife, Molly, um, I lost her really because as she fell into cognitive decline. So even though I was there, uh, being with her, looking after her for years, I'd lost the person that I kind of really knew during um, the earlier part of my life. And I felt like as if the the sort of constructions that I'd built up around my life had all crashed around me. Mm. So it was very much the sense of loss of everything I'd built. And I made a commitment to myself at that point that I wanted the rest of my life, wherever it led, to be truly, deeply meaningful. Mm. But here was the thing. I wasn't going to take somebody else's word for what was meaningful. I wasn't going to go down some path and then 20 years later say, oh, holy crap, that wasn't actually what I thought it was. Mm. So I started to try to fit, put the puzzle together myself. I discovered meditation, discovered Buddhism, discovered Taoism and um, energy practices. And, and it was through those two things together that I slowly began to put things together in my own mind in a way that made sense to me. Mm-hmm. And this new book that actually um, coming out with uh, right now, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, is really my own expression of how I've taken all this great wisdom from different traditions around the world and equally the great insights from modern science and put them together in a way that's made sense to me and hopefully will make sense to others. Yes. I um I can deeply resonate with that story and I, I find there's often you know the story of the of the um trauma or the breakdown that sort of shifts us out of this very shallow orientation, this resistance almost to looking at the deeper levels, um, to have a new insight into ways that the world can be constructed. And so one of the things I'd really love to to dive into here is what is your orientation to how to navigate the the attachments to this old worldview, the resistance to going mm-hmm. below that um, you know shallow layer, diving into the depths? What do you yeah. see as a as a mm-hmm. process of how to proliferate that search for meaning? One of the things I love that sort of keeps popping up across the book is um, you talk about the speech and Uncle Bob. Really, really important question. And um, for for anyone um, who's listening who hasn't taken a look at this book, um, just to clarify a little more, Uncle Bob basically is my <coughs> is a sort of character in th- that I sort of kick off the book with of somebody we all probably know, uh, maybe a family member or a colleague or something, who basically um, gives you the speech of telling you this is how the world works. And it's all the sort of the mainstream 
uh, tropes that you actually, um, that you hear people on TV, teachers, people in authority around the world, just take for granted and just um, lay them out as if we all know that it's truth. And so in the book, basically, in a way, the whole book is an answer to Uncle Bob. It looks at the ma these mainstream ideas of nature as a machine, what humans are about is conquering nature, we're all selfish, we're all separate individuals. And it shows how every one of those are actually um, fictions. They're made up um, ways of making sense of things that derive mostly from these um, elder men, uh, white men in Europe in the 17th century, who came up with a way of seeing things that through the power of colonialism and European power has now essentially taken over the world. What we're tempted to do is like write off Uncle Bob, like what an ass, you know? And um, And then we just feel, you know, either we got to teach him to overcome his uh, prejudices or just kind of dissociate from him and just focus on what we can do um, and create separations, basically. And of course, when Uncle Bob hears that kind of response, he just doubles down on what he believes um, and it creates that sense of othering. And that helps just to further polarize the world the way it is right now. So that's not the way to go, in my view. But if we truly believe in that sense of deep connectivity, well, the first thing we can do is be humble a little bit and look at the Uncle Bob within ourselves. And then with, with that kind of approach to ourselves, we can take exactly that type of approach to the Uncle Bobs out there, recognize that they themselves actually were deeply conditioned at young ages to feel that that's how they should respond to what's meaningful to them. Mm, absolutely. I know for me, the experience of stepping out of that had a lot to do with being willing to feel. You know, when we have an experience of this story we're being told not really working out, we are impacted. And with that impact, we either, you know, collapse and go into it or we resist it and try to numb it out and just keep going the direction that we're going. Like you said, kindness is the first step. We need to know that we are loved and that we're not being separated from also underneath that deeper grief for the state of what's happening right now and yes. you know, navigating our fears seems really central to me um, because there is something about the mind. I think it's also why, why a lot of people don't even ask this question is because there's, there's tremendous suffering in the world. And if I'm going to question that, then I'm going to at some point have to feel and really reckon with that nature of the way things are. I think that is so true. <clears throat> and what, what is a, the complex challenge around all this is it, what you were just touching on there, that there's, not, there's so much suffering in the world and so much destruction taking place. And I wouldn't want anybody to um, take from this conversation we're having right now, a message that says that kindness should be equivalent to um, just kind of being nice and not going to that place of fierce um, engagement with the destruction that's taking place. Mm -hmm. And so this is part of the, the, one of the most complex challenges is feeling into, as I'm sure you have, and as I have, and I'm sure most listeners, uh, uh, viewers have, is the destruction happening to life on earth right now. It's, it's just, it's this enormity. It's so out of control, it's so terrible. The destruction happening within human communities, the divisions, the inequalities, the structural racism, 
all of these things um, are things that we need to feel into enough to actually allow ourselves to have that um, fierce engagement. But then, and now this is the great challenge, to then lead with love in responding to that. And um, not necessarily loving the actions that are really bad that are being done by people, but um, loving the entire complex system, loving uh, the some some core beating heart that is within that person, um, and recognizing that it's only through connecting, it's only through connecting with compassion that we can actually have some of these transformations uh, that we actually need take place at the time we need them. You're listening to Cosmos Live, a production of Cosmos Journal, dedicated to transformation of ourselves, our communities, institutions, and planet in harmony with all life. You can subscribe at www.cosmosjournal.org. We are listening to a discussion between Nicholas Joyce and Jeremy Lent. Jeremy is an author and speaker whose work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways toward a life-affirming future. It seems like societally we have some pretty high inertia right now in a world of such rapid doing and efficiency and effect, you know, and um, expediency. And there's this, there's this like one level of intervention, which is how do we actually bring forth the scientific conversation that says, hey, here's evolutionary biology, here's quantum physics, here's um, these languages that I, I see those um, who, are, who are choosing to forward and experience a life of separation are often saying, well, that's just science. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of what the book is about is showing how what modern science tells us, <clears throat> whether it's systems thinking, complexity science, or evolutionary biology, or cognitive science, actually points <clears throat> to the same deep wisdom that um, some of the greatest uh, wisdom traditions of the world have been telling us for millennia, whether it's Buddhism, Taoism, or indigenous knowledge from around the world. And, and similarly, what the cognitive understanding tells us points to the wisdom of the heart of actually uh, of our feelings western thought thinks that our mind is is totally separate from our body and therefore our feelings don't have validity and mm -hmm. um, the notion of an integrative intelligence is not to deny the importance and value of that conceptual thinking but to look at how we can use <clears throat> that that's very special uh, potentially uniquely human gift and apply that to this recognition of what I call our animate consciousness or our animate intelligence, which is the intelligence that we share with all of nature. Um, and that's the intelligence we see in um, not just in other mammals around us, like whatever dolphins or elephants or chimpanzees who are highly intelligent in ways that we recognize, but even in trees and ecosystems and, and even in single cells, this deep intelligence of nature. And within each of us as humans, that deep intelligence um, shows itself in our feelings and our feeling tones and uh, the ways in which uh, we feel when we're interacting with somebody. But because of the fact that we've all been socialized and conditioned, it's difficult sometimes to 
um, trust our feelings. Sometimes our feelings can be wrong and they get, they get sort of meshed up with some preconceptions that our culture tells us and all this kind of stuff. So it's not just a matter of saying, ignore what a thought tells you, just go with a feeling, but it's much more about entering a deep practice of um, trying to understand the ways in which our feelings arise and trying to recognize the stories that each of us puts around our feelings. And ultimately recognizing that the stories we say that our feelings give us, and then we can really try to work from the validity of that feeling into what actually, how that actually makes sense in the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, you use this, use this term in the book, I think, human, human supremacy conditioning and this concept of animate intelligence. And I'm, I'm curious, um, it strikes me that one of those is sort of a mental frame, you know, that, that we are the most intelligent, we're separate from nature, you know, nature's here to serve us as humans orientation into this connection to the animate intelligence of all things. And the um, theme for this, this quarterly cosmos is realigning with earth wisdom. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to how you think people can get back in touch with that. Mm, yeah. Well, one of the, the <clears throat> ways to begin with that is this, uh, maybe to spend a moment just looking a little more closely at this, uh, what I call animate intelligence and, and really earth's wisdom is a very similar take on the same thing, which is this recognition that life itself has spent billions of years here on earth, evolving ways of doing things and, and being healthy as part of bigger ecosystems in like showing incredible intelligence. So again, from our mainstream thinking, we're used to thinking of humans as being smarter than any other creature. And then things like artificial intelligence being like way beyond anything that nature's ever done or anything like that. Um, and I kind of compare the two different AIs, like artificial intelligence and animate intelligence. And what is amazing, and thanks to science, we've begun to understand now in recent decades more clearly, even at the this level of a single cell, one single cell, we have 40 trillion, trillion of them in our bodies. One single cell is capable um, of ways of making sense of the world, of an intelligence that even our most advanced supercomputer can't actually do. It senses um, thousands of things at the same time. It goes through unbelievably complex processes of figuring out what it's doing, of communicating with other cells around us. And it's doing, this is part of an unfolding of evolution over billions of years. And, and then when you look at things like, um, what we think of as inanimate natural things like trees or plants, and, and we now know that um, not only do trees um, or plants themselves have multiple senses, uh, over a dozen senses, more than we can even uh, imagine or think about. They even communicate through each other through ecosystems in what's been now called the wood wide web by biologist Suzanne Simard. Um, so that there's actually um, true collective intelligence all around us that we can only begin, we're only beginning to recognize. So that's the intelligence of nature. And one of the great um, elements of that earth wisdom that's evolved over billions of years is recognizing the power of cooperation. Now, we've been told 
from our textbooks, from Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene and all that stuff that actually um, nature's evolved to be supremely competitive. The opposite is actually true. Um, this is not like wishful thinking. This is the result of scientific analysis of how evolution actually occurred. That the major steps in evolution from um, <clears throat> prokaryotes to um, cells with nucleus, to multicellular animals, to communities, to mammals, um, to humans, every one of those were in big phase transition increases in organisms learning to cooperate with each other which has led to the rich diversity of life on earth right now. So a lot of um, listening to earth's wisdom is to recognize what the earth itself, what Gaia itself is telling us about how life can actually be lived in a more flourishing um, way, both for individual organisms to flourish as part of something much, much bigger. Yes. And it, it's, it strikes me, you know, throughout the book, speaking to speaking to, you know, more uh, more indigenous and traditional cultures that are more connected to earth wisdom. Also going back into looking at, at Plato next to Aristotle and these very different orientations on reality have been around for thousands and thousands of years. And I'm, I'm curious how you make sense of the proliferation of the story of separation sort of this dominant Western worldview um, as really coming in and, and really having the, the power, very misappropriated power to really destroy and have significantly um, negative impacts on more earth-centric traditions and, and cultures. That's right. <clears throat> yeah, it's a great, um, great point because it's very reasonable for somebody to coming into this kind of conversation and saying, well, if how come if this is true that this um, selfish separation worldview is wrong, um, how come everyone talks about it? Like, how come it's like everywhere you go? Like, how come uh, it, there must be something in it if it's so fully it seems to be fully validated by the way the world works? What everyone says, and I think it is important to look historically at how this all came about. <clears throat> that really. There are steps, steps arose um, going back deep into history of levels of separation that led to reinforcing feedback effects, mm -hmm. which led to the story of separation becoming stronger and more dominant, even though it wasn't actually a true story. And really the first step of the separation was really with the rise of agriculture uh, 10 to 12,000 years ago, and people started to put fences up and <clears throat> there was separation from the, what we cultivate from the wilderness out there, and then separation between humans, like somebody got lucky, uh, it was able to grow more crops, and then they could employ other people, then they put up fences to keep their assets and their wealth separate from other people, and all these um, hierarchies developed over time. But then what is uh, fascinating to look at, and um, the author, um, Rian Eisler, does a great job of looking historically at how these kind of um, what she calls dominator systems took over from uh, partnership systems is what you see is um, those these hierarchies would come up with stories about how their in-group is better than other groups. And you'd have for the first time. Uh, there was this uh, ability to go and conquer <clears throat> some area next to you and steal their assets and take over their groups. And when people did that, 
And the ones that were more successful got to tell the story of what happened. <clears throat> You'll see these stories about the heroism of the warrior and about how they were like actually delighted to have massacred these other people. And it was all about like this kind of male bonding and the, the hero story and the warrior. And that got embedded in culture. So it, we got in cultures around the world, it got to be that um, people felt if, you, if you're going to succeed, you need to buy into this story of the kind of male dominant, uh, <clears throat> basically conquering uh, way, set of values. That actually, but that, even that is prehistory um, and then moving into history. But then in the West came a whole other layer of separation and domination with the rise of really the scientific revolution in that sort of 16th, 17th century timeframe. And there was this powerful sense of both conquering nature through discovering that science can actually um, uh, teach you to exploit the natural world, seeing nature as a resource to be exploited, and just as importantly, seeing the rest of, other, the, rest of uh, the world, other human beings uh, as resource for exploitation. So it's no surprise that colonialism and the um, scientific revolution of uh, conquering nature and capitalism all began in the same period, in the same place. And this is this, um, this kind of very, very powerful force of exploitation uh, based on this sense of separation that has since taken over the world, mostly through brute force of colonialism over hundreds of years. And now through a combination of brute force and the um, more silent but equally brutal power of um, financial and economic, economic domination that the elites have, uh, and through capitalism, have like forced on the rest of the world. So at this point, there's almost no big um, media, no um, system, no uh, national governments, no, no system out there that isn't completely infiltrated by this story of domination. Mm -hmm. And what is the solution? How do you see uh, this moving forward into the future? Do you think there's some inciting incident where we'll have like a planetary wide moment where we recognize, hey, this win-lose game that we've been playing actually vectors towards lose-lose on, you know, given the nature of us living on one finite planet together and mutually assured destruction and all of that, which became reality, you know, in the Cold War era? Or, or um, how do you, do you think that there's, what do you see as like a, as a feasible projection into how uh, cooperative culture can become a planetary norm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the one way of thinking about this is this kind of big overall um, sort of ontological question, if you will, about what is more powerful ultimately, these forces of destruction or forces of life. Um, and it's, as of course, we all know how true it is, how easy it is, how much easier it is to destroy than to build. But we also see how life itself has this ability to regenerate and, and grow itself. And in fact, one of the things I explore in the book is what I call the deep purpose of life. Because life, even though, again, we're told by mainstream society that life doesn't have a purpose, it's just there, just like and nothing, there's 
the universe itself is meaningless. Actually, um, that's wrong. Life, ever since it started on this earth billions of years ago, has had the purpose to regenerate, to actually thrive and regenerate itself. And it's done so successfully over billions of years. So much so that, in fact, really it's more likely that the real issue is not um, what will survive. It's much more a question of, well, will human civilization survive this crisis? Um, and how much damage will be done to life before it regenerates? I mean, you know, is it going to take tens of millions or hundreds of millions of years before it regenerates? Because it will regenerate, um, no matter how much damage we are as a civilization do to it in this century. But what I feel we need to do is also recognize that we, each of us, have life within us. And there is this potential to actually jettison this whole idea of um, being attached to a future, saying the future is going to be like this way, it's going to be like that, but actually just put our lives in a shared, um, a shared commitment to life, to work towards that life-affirming future, a future of flourishing, for humanity, a future of flourishing for life, and not be attached to the outcome, but be fully embedded in the process of what we're doing. Recognizing we don't know, none of us knows how things are going to happen. But what we do know is, and what we discover in any analysis of complex systems, and life and our society is a very complex system, is there's this non-linearity of how things happen. So, you know, when Greta Thunberg was sitting out there outside the Swedish parliament by herself for days on end. Nobody could have predicted that within a year or two, there'd be like millions of school children striking around the world, um, uh, like seeing her as their, their sort of emblem of what's possible to stand up for the transformation we need. And non-linearities like that are embedded in our system. They're happening all the time, they're going to happen. And so what each of us then can take from that is not to step aside and say, okay, I'll wait for that nonlinear uh, event to happen. I don't need to get involved. But this recognition that by us being connected with that transformation, each of us are part of putting in place the processes that could potentially lead to that nonlinearity. Yes, absolutely. I want to read um, something that was that was on your website that just summarized what you just brought forward so beautifully and just it, each um, each part of the book on on Jeremy's website is broken down, and there's a really beautiful header above a, a set kind of a dive into each chapter. And this one was: um, scientific reductionists claim the universe is utterly meaningless. Mainstream religious dogma has pointed to another dimension for the source of meaning. What if neither of these propositions are true? What if meaning itself arises from our interrelatedness? Modern research in systems theory, cognitive science, hints at a profound realization that wisdom traditions around the world have intimated for millennia. We enact meaning into the universe through how we attune to it. Meaning is a function of connectedness. Once we recognize our part in the web of meaning, we are called to devote ourselves to the flourishing of all life within it. I, I loved that. In the, in the pandemic time that we've just gone through, um, you know, we, we as a community here chose to keep meeting. We spent a few weeks meeting online, 
and then really tuned into, we had collective processes, probably about three circles the first three months of the pandemic, um, of really finding our relationship to death and finding the significance and the essential nature of the work that we were doing, which was coming together to grow food and, and find local solutions for um, meeting our needs, you know, looking at the fragility of global capitalism and saying, hey, like, this is definitely a moment to recognize and come together and address our concerns locally. But it also brought forward whether any part of this sort of activist orientation or this like standing for life, if it's attached to outcome, there's like a, there's like a false hope. Meg Wheatley mm -hmm. talks about hope as a four letter word. And it's actually the, the kind of bypassing of the gravitas of the present moment to like live in an illusion of like hopefulness and joy that the future will turn out this way. And that one of the more radical actions we can take is really just act out our purpose through the connection with the web of meaning, irregardless of an attachment to outcome, but simply because it's what life is calling forth from us. The future I want to live in, if there is a future of civilization, is not one of everything being reduced and automated. It's one of life resurging and working in right, right relationship with, you know, how can we take the best of indigenous culture and the best of the technological innovation we have experienced and marry it into the most advanced civilization that that we can imagine, you know, and, and yeah. letting all of that be part of the conversation and the orientation starting from within of like, regardless of outcome, what is my deepest calling and how I want to serve life? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I and this is such a core theme and it's really important to look at it closely. I think anyone who has opened up their minds to what is going on in the world around us right now and who actually cares about um, things beyond their, their sort of closed um, ego identity, who's kind of opened that identity to something beyond that, looks at it and can't help but being caught in this place of feeling the sense of terrible despair and wanting to feel that sense of hope. And then, um, you know, these camps develop. So uh, some people might be familiar with um, the deep adaptation movement that was uh, started just a couple of years ago by the um, environmental um, uh, fellow in UK called Jem Bendel, um, who looked at what's going on and kind of called it in a way that um, many academics were unwilling to, and then suddenly got this incredible viral response from what he was saying. Um, and then I've actually, um, a couple of years ago, wrote some critiques to Jem Bendel saying, calling for um, deep adaptation, um, it's like that's his, his term is deep adaptation, calling for deep transformation uh, rather than deep adaptation, because I was concerned at seeing people getting pulled into that orbit, just basically saying, okay, it's already too late. Right. Collapse is inevitable. What do we do from here? Um, and at the same time, we need to recognize that it can be exhausting to have this hope and want something to get better and then see how bad things are. And then you go, how do I, how do I sort of reorient around hope if it seems so unlikely? And for those of us who take a look at this kind of bigger context, these are feelings 
that really there's never been any archetype or any uh, historical wisdom tradition to feel into. Ultimately, it's this, this place of giving myself to life, of asking each morning when I wake up, um, what can I do for the greatest benefit of all life? I have those words um, imprinted on the wall right above my screen here as, as, as we're talking. Um, and by asking that question, it takes me away from that sense of doom and the sense, and it also takes me away from um, any kind of sense of false optimism, but it gives me that power and energy to really devote myself to what actually matters, to that life-affirming future that may or may not be there, um, but is there in my soul and spirit and there in the souls and spirits of millions and millions of people around the world. And by being in that place is, can be enacted in that very reality of that shared um, experience. Mm -hmm. And what happened over millions of years is that we humans developed what are called moral emotions. So we feel it, it's not just that we have to overcome our selfishness, we actually feel it in our hearts, in our guts, the sense of compassion, sense of shame if we do something wrong, um, that sense of um, outrage if we see somebody else do something to take advantage of others, the sense of fairness, all of these things we feel deeply um, because they're actually part of our human heritage. And it's when we connect with those things with each other that we actually can create a force that is even more powerful than the force of money and violence um, and military power and all of those things that are, that are destroying the world right now. What we have to do is actually help people to connect with a true intrinsic human living nature. Yes. Yes. And in terms of, so there's this relationship between a society that is conditioning us to, you know, continue to demonstrate the, the dominant uh, ways of being. And we have individuals who are awakening through whatever sort of cathartic, cathartic, ecstatic experience into a recognition that there's actually a more meaningful way of living. You know, I, I used to live in a lot of intentional communities. That was sort of my background for a decade was land-based eco-villages and projects like that. And then sort of at some point I, I received instructions to go back into the heart of a small city. And to land what I had learned from that level of intimacy and that level of relating and start to pollinate that in a place where more people are, where it's, you know, at a community center in the heart of a city and much more accessible. But what I've noticed is there was a factor I wasn't reckoning with, which was when you come into a city and you just have a community center as opposed to living off on a piece of land together, everybody is still addressing their individual domains of human concern. How do I make money? Where am I going to live? Where do I get my food? And all of these aspects that were built into the more uh, integrated model of an eco-village are sort of making it more difficult for people to rise up against those odds and the life force it takes to address their concerns to live here and work on a collaborative project. So, do you see, um, I know the last chapter is a bit about sort of where we are now right. and where we could be headed. Are you, um, are you seeing possibilities for systems level, societal level structures that can support people? Like I suppose an eco-village is one, but I wanna see these sprouting 
in more accessible contexts where yes. um, where everybody yeah. can get a, get a taste and it can actually help them address those human concerns. Yeah, yeah, I think that is super important. And um, as you say in that last chapter, I, I basically just kind of touch into a vision um, that is is not just like my vision, it's a vision shared by a lot of people around the world of what's called an ecological civilization, this um, sense of what if we were to actually re rebuild our civilization on a different uh, foundation. One that rather than being wealth, uh, based on like wealth accumulation and exploitation is actually life affirming. One that's based on the principles of life, the principles of what it make ecosystems um, flourish for millions and millions of years, oftentimes, and resiliently and richly. And, and so to your question, um, part of that ecological civilization would involve different ways of organizing at community levels. And I think one of the most important concepts that is becoming more and more discussed and um, understood more deeply is this notion of the commons. Like, um, for most of human history, we lived um, in a shared, sharing resources in, uh, in a, as like a, a communal commons um, where the resources around were part of what the group had access to. Um, and they weren't even viewed as resources like in the way that we do as something separate, <clears throat> but they were viewed as a living um, symbiotic um, environment mm -hmm. for collective flourishing. And yes. um, well, through centuries and in really millennia and centuries of enclosure and the rise of capitalism, um, the commons now for most people is this kind of quaint term about some sort of medieval village or something. Um, but actually, um, there's this notion of the commons as a new form, a new ancient form of actually organizing how humans act together. There's a writer called David Bollier, um, and uh, who's co-wrote with Silke Helfrich, um, a, a great recent book called Free, Fair, and Alive, um, mm -hmm. which looks at the notion of the commons from a profoundly different point of view, like that it's not just the commons is like a shared resource like air or water that we have to learn to manage together, but it's actually almost like a verb, like there's commoning and a person becomes a commoner. And it's like a whole different way of approaching life and community. And the wonderful thing about the commons is that it's something that can be applied on the ground, as you're saying, in, in a city. Um, it can be applied in real estate. You know, you, you can, um, a few people can get together and say, we're going to set up a trust in common um, with each other to buy a property or a few properties and like um, actually set the rules so that it doesn't become part of this real estate buy and sell market game, but actually becomes a place where we can build community together, live and actually serve each other with resources we have to offer each other, et cetera. It can be things like um, solar energy. You can have a commons where you create uh, shared communal structures to um, help people to get solar panels on their roofs or a shared solar farm within a small community or neighborhood where people can share electricity. This is so exciting because it offers a way for people to work together, feel to what you're talking about, that sense of shared energy and excitement of really making a difference and doing it with the power of each other and actually transforming our society from within. So that rather than have to then talk about some revolution with all of the negatives of bloodiness and, and you know, uh, horrible uh, um, 
the horrible trauma that goes with that. We can actually look at societal transformation from within, where the bad um, destructive structures of society can begin to just weaken and unravel, and we can actually build the, the future we want in our own grassroots um, focus on what we can do together and then connecting up with what others are doing um, elsewhere. And so I do hope that the book does help to inspire people and see where they are and what their work is doing within that web of meaning. Mm -hmm. And so in fact, you know, the, um, the, the way I finish the book is asking people to really sit back and consider to themselves, what is that sacred and precious strand that they are weaving in the web of meaning, that recognition that none of us are going to do it by ourselves, that the work each of us does, um, in the one hand, is this tiny infinitesimal um, part of the transformation that's needed, and on the other hand, is connected in such a way that it is actually part of this great global transformation. So it helps us to feel um, both freed, that we're not trying to fix everything all by ourselves, and also feel a sense of empowerment, recognizing that what we're doing is actually part of something that is truly going on around us, something that's vast and huge and has the potential to transform our whole civilization. Beautiful, yeah. So it's sort of this um, offering a really uh, holistic orientation for people to return to and remember that they're part of this larger movement. Right, exactly. I guess one last question um, would be, as, as the author Jeremy Lent, what's your why? What's the underlying purpose of this rigorous writing that you're doing mm -hmm. to set this meta frame and invitation through lots of different languages, making it very accessible to people to reorient? Yeah. Your, yeah. Well, in simple terms, I can share with you something that I, I kind of affirm to myself uh, in my own internal meditation every morning, which is uh, the simple statement that I am an agent of life um, and I am a beacon of light in the dark. And that's really what I've given my life to. And uh, my intention is that everything I do regarding the book, regarding um, any form of interaction, both personal or public, written, spoken or felt, um, is to do it um, as an agent of life, to really uh, devote basically every breath, every element, every, every cell in, in, in my being um, to life. Because to me, that is the ultimate um, divinity that we have as living entities on this earth to give ourselves to. Well, thank you so much for this time today and for that calling and the emanation that you are. Thank you for writing The Web of Meaning. I'm very excited to see more and more people reading it across the country and across the world. Um, if you want to find out more about Jeremy, you can visit his website, jeremylent.com, or just Google search Web of Meaning. And thank you for your deep insights and your deep devotion to the unfolding of a more beautiful world. And thank you, Nick, for your deep thinking and this beautiful conversation that you facilitated, you've made happen today. Thank you. Absolutely.